Welcome to the Edible Alpha podcast series, your source for actionable insights into making money in food. I'm Tara Johnson, the Tara's Way Lady, and we're here to talk to a wide range of stakeholders about what it really takes to grow a financially viable food business. So, Brianna, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's really exciting to talk to you and um, be on your show. Yeah, it's great. It's great. And we have a lot to talk about because your company is doing some really ambitious, amazing things. So I think the best way to start is to have you just introduce yourself and your company. Sure. So my name is Bree Warner, and I am the CEO of Atlantic Sea Farm based in Maine. Awesome. And Atlantic Sea Farm um, started a while ago, right? That's right. I took over in 2018, but the company had been around for about nine years prior as uh, Ocean approved, and it was actually the first commercial seaweed farm in the country. So it's a really neat history before I, I took over in 2018. Yeah. Um, and, and, and at that point, we renamed the brand um, and really started moving out in a different social direction with a social mission and a different line of products. But the company itself has been around as a real innovator in the space of seaweed for a number of years. Right, right. And and it's so great that we're talking today because for so many reasons, but just this week I saw an article, um, I think it was the New York Times talking about seafood is like the next big thing, like seaweed, not seafood, seaweed. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, people have been saying that for years now. Um, and, and in fact, the segment has grown exponentially, but 98% of that seaweed that's eaten in the United States is all imported and it's all dried and it's oh. often grown in pretty dirty water. So it's, it's grown in areas that give you really high levels of heavy metals. So oh. while kelp has been called the new kale for a number of years, what it really has been is imported kelp chips. Uh, oh, <laughs> that's rehydrated into seaweed salad. So what we offer is, for the first time, people can get domestically lime-grown kelp, and it's also the first time that people have ever been able to have fresh kelp at scale that they can buy in the grocery store. So it's a really, it's a new, it's a new way of approaching seaweed, and uh, you know, it's definitely on trend. But we're actually very much innovators for allowing Americans to access seaweed in a way that they never have before. Right. That's, that's really interesting because I, I'm sure I'm like a lot of people that my only real association with eating seaweed is in sushi, right? Or, or sashimi, right? you know, rolls. That's like, that's, that's what I think of when I think of seaweed. I think that's true for a lot of Americans, although millennials and younger tend to, the data suggests that they tend to eat a lot of those seaweed snacks. So mm -hmm. the number mm -hmm. two of the top three importers of seaweed are actually Costco and Trader Joe's. Interesting. And it's in the form of those seaweed snacks. And so people are, are you know, younger people are very familiar with seaweed, but it's just in a very different format that is, that is pretty far removed, quite frankly, from what is coming out of the ocean. Right, right. So why don't why don't we go back to the farm because because you sort of grew out of this farm, right? And and tell tell us where you are and how you do this farming. 
Yeah, so in 2009, when when um, the founders founded this company, as I said, they were the first commercial seaweed farm in the country. But what that really meant is they had to troubleshoot a whole lot. Um, so they started these two small farms and, and learned over the years about how to grow seaweed on it, how to grow seeds, because that is actually part of this, is, is a seaweed nursery. Um, you know, seaweed babies aren't quite as cute as uh, other babies, but they we <laughs> find them quite serving. <laughs> so we have our, our entire seaweed nursery that we've grown. Um, and I got involved in this company kind of not necessarily through food, but for through the idea of economic development and preemptive economic development. So here on the coast of Maine, we are facing as we are everywhere, but it's just very visible here on the coast of Maine, some of the consequences of climate change on a, on a very large scale. And our most of our wild fisheries are no longer um, profitable or, or um, even open to fishermen. But one industry that is thriving or has been over the last 10 years has been our lobster industry. And we have 5,000-plus lobster license holders, and it is one of the only industries along our very rural coast and our very poor coast otherwise. So, you know, what, when we look at this lobster fishery, we recognize that the water is changing rapidly, and some of the reason that we have such a good lobster population right now is because the water has changed so dramatically. So one would stand to reason that that will continue to change in a negative direction over time. And, uh, you know, they, it's a three-season fishery. So with seaweed, there's an opportunity to help fishermen diversify their income stream in the off-season to lobster by planting kelp because kelp is a winter product and a, a winter crop to complement development and started working with Ocean Approved to help build their supply chain by working with fishermen exclusively to grow kelp. And now, um, since I've taken over in 2018, we're now working with 29 fishermen this season um, and expect to deliver over $500,000 back to the coast just in direct payments next season. So it's been, it's been a huge shift from two tiny farms producing 40,000 pounds to next year. Right now, we're, we're doing our nursery for 800,000 pounds of kelp. Um, and it's been a, a pretty dramatic growth phase over the last two years. That's amazing. And, and this, I love that term preemptive economic development, um, because that's not typically what we do, right? We kind of wait for things to fall apart and then go, oops, maybe we should do something new instead of being proactive about it. That's right. That's right. I mean, you hear this in environmentalism too, you know, people wait till there's the, the last day of it before they say anything. Right. Um, and, and we wait until, um, until the populations are low or there's some sort of danger. And the ultimate win in economic development is if we smooth out some of that shock and absorb some of the shock that would otherwise be there if there was not that diversity. And that's not sort of the sexy, sexy look at this turnaround we did, but guess what? Those turnarounds in, in economic development just don't happen. Right. Um, and so we see these mill towns and we see these coal towns and we we knew that these industries were fading out and no one did anything to, to figure out some alternative forms of making money because everyone's head was in the sand about wanting to continue to do that one thing. And so we're not encouraging people to get out of the lobster industry. In fact, it's the inverse. And to have a 
right now we really rely on a healthy lobster industry in order for kelp to grow, considering that these folks have big boats, they have the ropes, they have the moorings, they have the cash, and that helps them get into kelp farming. But over time, what we hope this will do is provide a, a real sustainable income so that if and when that lobster fishing income does go down, um, and this season is a perfect example, is that the consequences came quicker than we would have mm. imagined because of the COVID situation and how much of lobster goes into restaurants and is exported to China, which has been, you know, horribly affected by the Chinese trade war. Um, you know, the price at the dock is down and the folks that have worked with us over the past year have money in their pocket that they might, you know, that they would have not had otherwise and uh, are definitely better off than those who didn't diversify. Right. Right. And, and my, it's my understanding that, that kelp and other seaweed are like this too, that they, that growing in the growing process, they sequester a lot of carbon. Yeah. So um, basically when we plant, there's too much carbon in the air and the, the ocean absorbs that carbon mm-hmm. and the carbon that, that is in the air is obviously from pollution. And when the ocean absorbs that carbon, it changes the pH of the, of the ocean. It becomes more acidic. And the acidification of the ocean and what that does to the ocean habitat is still being studied. But what we do know is that it degrades shell-bearing organisms and also um, affects phytoplankton in a negative way. And that is, phytoplankton is sort of the essential sauce of the ocean in so many ways, but it also helps produce a lot of the oxygen that we breathe. So between degrading things like clams and mussels and oysters and um, shell-bearing organisms and corals, it also has an effect on our air. So when we plant kelp, we actually remove that carbon from the water where it is being grown, um, or some of that carbon, I should say. Um, so we reduce the ocean acidification locally. And, and what that really means is, so if we plant mussels underneath our farm, um, we see that those mussels are about, are, are much stronger than the mussels outside of the farm, and that's simply because we're reducing the acidification in the water by farming kelp and then removing it from the water. That's, it's such an amazing intricate web, isn't it? That, um, yeah, it's crazy. So, so kelp, not only is it, is it um, helping the lobster farmers, but it's actually helping the, the ocean ecosystem. That's right. That's right. We often talk about it as um, an adaptation and mitigation effort. So we're helping people adapt to climate change while also mitigating some of its effects. And there's not many foods on the planet that can do that. Right. 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 So, so you took this, you came in um, to, to this organization that has this amazing mission and, um, my impression is that you also were instrumental in helping the company raise money so that you could scale this effort up. Is that is that true? Yeah. So when when I came into the company, the mission was really focused just around the the environmental mission. But mm-hmm. you know, in order to scale and to bring impact to the coast, there is this real opportunity to get fishermen involved. So that's where we really kind of scaled up on that side and. Um, we really just kind of changed the whole face of the company by being focused around this kind of dual adaptation and mitigation strategy. And in order to do that and scale up to be able to go from 30,000 pounds to 
250,000 pounds the next year, um, we really needed to invest in branding, in product development, and in the manufacturing equipment in order for us to be able to take on that that extra amount of kelp. So I, after I came on board in August of 2018, and I launched a funding round in mid-October of the same year and was able to actually close that um, only about a month and a half labor, later um, with uh, with the capital in pocket to do what we really need to do for the, for the upcoming year and a half. That's great. And, and it's a testament to the compelling nature of the value proposition, right? To impact investors, we don't, we don't often see opportunities where you can both help, you know, do the economic development piece as well as an environmental piece in such a clear, clearly connected way. That, you know, the adaptation think, mitigation. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and, you know, I think what was also exciting about this opportunity for people is that we are first movers. Nobody is doing what we're doing and nobody's doing it at the scale that we're doing it. Mm-hmm. And it is, quite frankly, first to market in every way. And we're forging our own category in a way that's never been done before. And so I think those kind of opportunities for investors come around very rarely. There's often risks on what is being done that are somewhat new, but to have an entirely new product for people, product line, um, I think people really wanted to get in on the ground floor of that as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there, there aren't a lot of opportunities where um, you're seeing the connection all the way from a, a, production system I'll call it all the way to a, a to a product right um <laughs> yeah the, the vertical mm-hmm. integration is uh sometimes maddening um mm-hmm. but it is also <laughs> an exceptional piece of of the business um and the fact that now we have these excellent farmers up and down the coast of Maine geographically dispersed but also with an incredible amount of social capital on the coast and knowledge about the ocean and how to farm it and use it means that, you know, the growing part is taken care of by absolute professionals. And we provide the technical assistance, we provide the free seed, we provide a buying guarantee, um, and they are able to grow gorgeous kelp. So we can focus on growing great seeds for them, um, making sure that it feels to them as easy as possible, that we can pick it up at the dock and it goes away, and then bringing it in for a, a series of processing and then marketing branding and product right right all those things that that farmers really farmers and fishermen don't really want to do <laughs> and it's a different skill no. set right no that's right and you know it's 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 funny when we have we have uh, mandatory annual meetings with our farmer network and most of them say like i don't really need to know what happens to it after i get it to you i just want to make sure you get it in the way that makes sense and i oh. think um it's it's really the complementary to that is is incredible, especially when you look at the model of the lobster industry, where people, you know, they pick up the bait at the dock, they put it in their traps, they fish for the lobster, and then they bring it back and land it on the dock. They don't you know, do the extra, extra processing of tails and claws. Mm-hmm. Um, so we wanted to make this as easily adaptable as possible to what people are already doing along the coast and using some of that incredibly valuable working waterfront infrastructure, which has largely disappeared from the United States, but is still um, holding on in a very positive way here in Maine. 
That's great. So, okay. So is, is kelp a perennial or is it an annual? Like, do you have to keep planting so, kelp or? Yeah, we, we do. So there's, there are some areas in the world where you can plant the seaweed, grow it on the lines and then cut it at the base and it will grow back. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have that opportunity here for two reasons. One is that uh, it gets pretty warm here in the summer. I mean, it never feels warm to swim in the ocean in the summer. Like, let's be clear, Maine is never warm. Um, <laughs> but it does, the water, the kelp feels like it gets a little warm in July and August. And there's a lot of fouling that happens because of that. Mm-hmm. So the product is just not as, as pure and clean as we look for since we're doing all fresh products. Right. We really kind of harvest a young baby kelp that gives mm-hmm. it a much more mild flavor and taste and also a higher nutritional content. But, um, the other reason is just lobster. Uh, mm-hmm. The clothesline is just dotted with lobster traps the rest of the year. And, our, our, you know, the last thing we want to do is, is cause gear conflict issues where the kelp is getting in the way of, of lobster. Um, so, you know, this, is, this creates the complementarity, but also creates a much higher, a higher quality product. So basically the kelp farms disappear by the time that any summer tourists or any lobster trap goes in, they're, they're long gone. Interesting. And, and so are you going to be growing, um, uh, you know, other than for research purposes, like mussels and things, complementary things like that, or is that really just for research? Um, that's, that's research, but we also have some partner farmers that we work with that do that work. Mm. So we have uh, one of our partner farmers is a mussel aquaculturist. Um, others are getting involved into mussels and, and oysters. So, you know, there is an ecosystem to create around that that can help the, the other products within it and, and be complementary to one another. So it's not something that we are actively doing, um, but many of our partner farmers are looking into that more or have been doing it for quite some time. Interesting. So now we're at, you've grown the kelp, um, the farmers harvest it, they bring it to the dock, and now you pick it up and take it to a facility, right? Yes. Yeah, so we pick it up. We run a lot of trucks up and down the coast yeah. between April and June. Um, and uh, like I said, we have 20, this year we had 29 farmers. Last year we had 24. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, they basically, they landed at the dock. We pick it up. We bring it into our facility and we either flash freeze it or process it immediately. So before the sun goes down, the, the stuff is, is in its form. Um, mm-hmm. So it's hyper fresh. And then we do, we turn it into five different products, two frozen and three fermented. And the fermented products, do those every, we process those every three weeks throughout the year so that they we can have, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's not the same shelf life as a two-year frozen product. Um, so we process those every few weeks. And uh, we turned them into delicious products that were primarily in food service prior to COVID, uh, but are now really kind of, we've, we've hastened our plans um, to have a more uh, national retail uh, presence. And before that, we were basically focused in New England, um, but we're launching across the country and uh, people can buy these five super accessible products that you know, don't take any work to prepare. Right. So frozen, so we'll start with the frozen. So are, is, is, is that going to retail as frozen or is it? It is. Yeah. It is. Okay. We have, uh, our two frozen is one is ready cut, which is a 
shredded blanched kelp. So it, it basically acts more like a green vegetable than a seed. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's fresh, blanched, and shredded. And those come in a, a three, four-ounce pack so people can just defrost them for like a minute underwater. And then it's ready to eat. So people put them on salads. People put it in seafood pastas. Um, people bake with it. I mean, it's just a really versatile product, and it's, it's mm. extremely mild in taste. So there's none of that kind of low-tide taste that you would associate right. with the dried seaweed. Um, it's, it's very fresh, and that's mostly because of blanching. Then we also have kelp cubes, which people put into smoothies, but they also put them into pestos and salad dressings for umami flavor. Um, and those will be available across every sprout in starting in January um, in the freezer section. Nice, yeah. So kelp cubes and for smoothies and and soup and yeah, that's awesome. Um, yeah, yeah. And then then the fermented. So talk to me about fermented seaweed. Yeah, I will. Oh, and for I kelp. the ready cut kelp. Many of your many of your listeners may have already had that ready cut kelp. It was featured in a bowl with David Chang on um, oh. with Sweet Green and David Chang. It, it was released in early February across all of Sweet Green's chains and very heavily promoted. It was it was one of their most successful bowls. But people may have already had that ready cut kelp. They were putting about a quarter cup of it on all of the the, the salads with David Chang. So. Um, you know, and also if people go to Little Beat or if they eat uh, veal kits from Daily Harvest, they've already had that ready-cut kelp. Nice. Now it's just available on um, the grocery shelves too. Yeah. So the fermented is the fermented is really really fun because it we wanted to create products that were very accessible to people and and also functional. Um, and the, one of the reasons that people dehydrate seaweed is because it stores well. So how do you store seaweed without drying it? And so you can either freeze it or you can ferment it. So with that in mind, it's recognizing the massive trend for gut health and probiotics and uh, functional foods in general. We created a line of three products that um, one, which is our fermented seaweed salad, which is basically based on the flavor profile of that bright green neon seaweed salad that you can get at a sushi restaurant, which is imported dried, then rehydrated, then dyed with yellow five and blue one, and all the stuff that the Mountain Dew. Um, we basically took that flavor profile, because it is delicious, and mm-hmm. made a version of it that was fermented and lasted without any preservatives. Mm. Um, and without any dyes, and so it's beautiful green simply because we blanch it, and when seaweed hits water, it turns green, or when kelp does. So mm. this is a, a beautiful, natural <laughs> green mm-hmm. uh, color with um, that, that is fermented, so it's got tons of probiotics, and then all of the nutrition of kelp, which is you know, one of the highest uh, calcium, potassium, and iodine um, sources in, in food. Um, and then we have a second one, which is uh, the fermented seaweed salad actually just won a Sophie uh, Award for Best New Product. Cool. Um, and then our Sichi, which is a raw seed-based kimchi at 60% seaweed, um, is just uh, won a good food award for taste. And that is uh, a traditional uh, barrel-fermented kimchi, but made with seaweed instead. Mm. And with some cabbage and radishes included. And then the third is our um, 
Fiji beet kraut, which is a beet and raw kelp sauerkraut that is perfect for grain bowls and eggs and, and pretty much anything else you'd like to top it with. So um, haddock rubens is something I hear a lot of people using it for. So that's, huh. that's sort of our, our full product line. And then we have you know, our food service stuff, which includes a lot of other things like full leaf kelp because chefs like Dan Barber use it to wrap around fish and, um, and lamb legs. And we have puree, which places like little beet use it as salad. So we have a full line beyond that, but our our consumer packaged goods are, are those five. Sure, sure. And and I would think that, you know, your original strategy of launching first into food service like pre-COVID, right, um, would make a lot of sense to help consumers understand, like have chefs help you introduce kelp to cons- the American consumer, right? Because we're, yeah, not, we're not used to it, right? Right. It was definitely the idea behind it was, was around driving trial, um, but mm-hmm. also the partnerships that we were able to work on with food service customers, like like the ones I've already named, where they were based, they were using, they were they were they wanted to show their con- consumers, um, you know, their their own sourcing story, and it's it's kelp, our kelp tells a really good story and a very clear story that people can understand. So if, for example, you say, I source strawberries really well, look at this farm, people aren't going to really hear that in the same way they will of, look at this kelp, we're choosing kelp because it's the right thing to do and because it tastes good. And people are going to hear that in a very different way. So we were very fortunate that you know, companies that we worked with, like Be Good, which is a burger chain, put our sichi on their burgers. And they can, they talked about our story and the carbon side of that and how we're providing alternative income for fishermen. And similarly with Daily Harvest, um, who does plant-based bowls and where they're getting the kelp and how it's how it's sustainable for both the environment and the coast. So it was a great strategy and it was working very well. And it was driving trial while we were launching our retail products here in New England. Um, and our plan was to go national and retail in about a year. That's just sort of hastened to the plan, but. Um, you know, I think we we got a lot of learnings out of it, but we've also created some fantastic partnerships that I'm I'm more than confident we'll we'll come back after this and we'll continue to um, partner with people who are really doing right by their customers by and and the and the planet by sourcing better than their competitors. Right, right. Yeah, no, I mean brands are stories, right? And you have a incredibly rich, compelling story that you know, helps the people you work with. And the same thing is right. will be true for the right retailers too. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I mean, at a time where people are really limiting views, we've seen incredible interest from buyers, mostly because first, I mean, not one, because they know that this is something that, you know, has not been available before and they want to, they want to pick it up. But two, they recognize that consumers right now are looking for food that is not only good for them, but that is good for the planet. Mm-hmm. And this story just syncs up so well with both of those narratives. Right. And I'm I'm thinking about your um the fermented seaweed in particular. Well, all of it, but the fermented seaweed in particular right now at a time when we're worried about our immune systems and fermented foods help with that. And we're watching our, you know, our friends in the West Coast have terrible fires and floods and, and, you know, the hurricane season is horrible. And 
it's just kind of these mounting anxieties and what can you do? Well, you could make some food purchasing choices, right? That's what's so powerful about what you're doing. Yeah, that's right. We One of our phrases we often say is eat like you give a damn um, mm-hmm. because that's really what this is, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's the, the benefit of, we also have to make it tasty, which has been, you know, oh, really sure. exciting to be able to offer things that people who don't even know the story mm-hmm. want to I, taste it and like it. And I think that's that's one thing about these awards that we've gotten into Sophie or the, the next year, the Good Food Awards, is that this, these are blind taste tests. Um, right. But if it doesn't taste good, people will only buy it one time, right? Mm-hmm. But um, it, it kind of, it gets that, that repeat customer. But that first customer, that first purchase, maybe because, people do want to start eating in a way that feels better to them because there's, there's so little in our control, but the way that we eat is something that if we have the money to choose how we eat, which not everybody does. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we have the ability to choose how we eat, um, we can make pretty tremendous differences in the way that the, that the food system works. Right. Right. So getting back to your manufacturing. So, it would be hard to use a co-packer to do what you do because you're doing things that <laughs> like a lot of people, you know, you start your brand and you're like, okay, I'm going to start, I'm going to have a co-packer. It'll be good. Then we'll get it up. And then maybe eventually the volume up and maybe eventually we're going to make it, but that doesn't work for what you do. It doesn't. I just, I love hearing you say that because sometimes I'm like, what am I not thinking of? How come, <laughs> how come we're doing all of this? Um, we do have a fantastic partner doing our fermenting work um, okay. because that is once the kelp is processed, the fermenting is, is you know, very much like fermenting anything else. Um, mm-hmm. But our, our partner in that um, is, is just a phenomenal artisanal uh, barrel um, fermenters. I mean, just, just they, they make incredibly high, high quality products. Mm-hmm. But for the actual kelp production, you hit the nail on the head. There is actually no one who could do this. And sometimes we wonder if we can do it. But um, right. we, have, we, we are figuring it out. And, and certainly from a safety perspective, which is always the number one perspective, where we've, we've always been way ahead of the game on that. We're third-party audited, um, which we're the only ones that are third-party audited under vegetables. Um, we, they created a new category for us. Yep. And... Uh, which is great, but you know we're we're still learning about when you take kelp out of the water and you blanch it and you shred it. Why is sometimes that we have a twenty percent water loss and sometimes we have a forty percent water loss? So if you gave that to a co-packer to said you don't know what your yield is going to be on any given day and oh the kelp really likes seawater, so you're going to have to get some seawater and filter that, and um, you're going to have to really take an eye on the kelp to see how it's going to react on any given day. That's that's not something that a co-packer is going to do. Um, right. So we have, like, kelp logs from every farm that tells us how every piece of kelp is going to be every day, and then it changes the next year dramatically. Huh. So that's going to be that something amazing? that we, we always... Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, it's a natural product. So much of sure. the agriculture that we have now is bread, right? So, like, that right. honey crisp, as we all know, it's not a GMO product, but... It's something that has been cultivated over years by humans to be the exact thing that they want. Right. Kelp is, we are going out and we're hunting for the for 10 pounds, let's say, of the most beautiful kelp that we can find. And then we spore it out into 
800,000 pounds. Um, but we're relying on new kind of kelp stock every year, and, and we don't, you know, and it's going to grow differently in southern Maine than it is in northern Maine. And mm-hmm. um, so, yeah, we, we own that process. Uh, you know, it's it's not... It's not always uh, the most, <laughs> the, most mm-hmm. the least frustrating part of what we're doing, but it is what it is. And I do talk to brands sometimes that are sitting in their office in, you know, New York, right. and their co-packer is out in California. And, you know, there's something that I feel, I sometimes do feel a little bit of, um, you know, hubris in, in saying, in, in, in a good way of saying, you know, hey, I know what my help looks like every day. I, right. you know, I have full control over this. And there's something to that when you know that you're putting food into the supply chain, then we have full control over that. So there is, there is positive to it, but certainly it takes a whole lot of innovation and there's not anything to buy off the shelf. Everything needs to either be bought off the shelf and then retrofitted for our purposes or completely designed from scratch. Right. Um, and that can get, uh, that can get costly and it can also get, um, exhausting to, for things not to work, but Right. Um, you know, it's also it's also one of the reasons that we have a competitive advantage. Sure. And it sounds like because um, the Asian market evolved toward drying that you can't even really go and get equipment in Asia either. Not really. There's some that we can. Um, there's mm-hmm. things like kelp washers or, you know, and, and there are there is some equipment there that we are definitely looking at um mm-hmm. or have looked at or have purchased but um you know it's it is a lot of kind of figuring things out and and also the scale there i mean it's so different right right <laughs> it's just such farms so when we're talking about a machinery from um you know millions and millions of pounds of kelp that comes in it's going to be very different than what we need right right it reminds me of a lot of food processing that way yeah. Right. It actually, yeah. you know, there are a lot of, lot of technology is made for big volume processing and there's like, so it leaves this gap between I'm making it by hand to I'm making it at a, at large scale and then there's no That's equipment right. in the middle. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Uh-huh. That's right. And, and the equipment on the, uh, often on the Asian side, what we're seeing is equipment that's still very manual, but mm. the, the labor is, is just, I mean, uh, the factors of of cost of labor really do factor into how you want to design your facility. Oh, sure. Um, and, you know, you can put 17 people on a kelp washer there if you're not paying them a livable wage. Right. But we are. Um, and that becomes a very... And that's what we say about our kelp, too. You know, people will come to us sometimes and say, hey, I can buy six kilos or two kilos of this bright green seaweed salad um, for $6. And one pound of yours is, is $6. And they well, yeah, it's because everybody gets a livable wage, both to our farmers and to our staff. Um, and that's something that is, that is, it's one of the reasons also that we went into fresh seaweed rather than dried is because we know we can't compete on price, but we can compete on mission and taste and um, form if we're doing something that's totally different. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. And I think, I mean, this is another thing that COVID, I think, has kind of helped, I don't know, through the, through the, um, what do I want to think? The curtain has been drawn, right? And we now see a bit more of how um, labor is treated in their food system. Like all of the people who 
work in restaurants and the people who are working in meatpacking facilities and, and all of the people who have been so um, adversely impacted by COVID, suddenly this is the, the problems with our system from the perspective of labor have suddenly become much more apparent. Right. Yeah. And it's in our country, too. It's not just Asia, right? Like, it's not just Asia where we don't pay, people aren't paid right. well, right? It's it's right here. It's right here. And I think that's, you know, and I think in agriculture in particular, that's a real issue. And there's, there's a huge social justice and social equity piece of, of our business that um, is really key. I mean, quite frankly, lobstermen wouldn't accept anything lower than that because they, they know what they can make on the water for other uses. Right. And that has helped us really kind of maintain um, that level of pay that we, we should be maintaining anyway, um, mm-hmm. but that we, you know, we would hope to set an example for others to do the same. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And and has that been, like, how has that translated into how you manage your facilities and like how many people work in your plant and that kind of thing? Yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's translated in, in various ways. I mean, we have a pretty small permanent staff because we are so seasonal. Sure. And that's something that does make it a little bit more difficult to offer full benefits to everybody. But certainly sure. for our permanent staff, um, we have we are a very small company, yet we have health care for everybody. We have paid uh, parental leave. We have short-term disability opportunities. We have, we have sabbatical. We have all of these options that make this, because working in a startup um, constantly and forging this entirely new market is not an easy gig. It's not like no. you come in with a stress-free day every day. And so people are really kind of given the work-life balance that makes sense both to keep this com- for the right thing to do, but also to make sure that this company, that you have the energy to come in every day and mm-hmm. keep, in essence, uh, running up against against the tide. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> it works. Right. That's, that's impressive because lots of, lots of, I mean, the majority of startups don't do any of that. They, you know, they're just, yeah, whether they, and a lot of them want to, right. It's just hard to do that. Um, That's right. And And it is, it's very hard and it's not, I mean, it's not always the easiest thing to convince a board of either. Right. right? I mean, you're saying this, this is the long-term investment in the company that we need to be making. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think as well, also as a woman CEO, as a female CEO, it's something that I'm constantly thinking about is how women are disadvantaged from a number of reasons in startups, partially because there is no parental leave. And, right. um, you know, there, there's so many, there's so many ways that we can make this more equitable. And if we can set the example of how to do well by doing good, mm-hmm. um, then we're, we're going to try our best at that. Mm-hmm. And you, uh, so this whole dimension to your brand, the, um, that how did your, um, how do your investors? Because I'm assuming your board is is populated by investors, and um, how do they? I mean, did they really wholeheartedly buy into this whole thing when they invested in you, or do you think? Or? <laughs> they did. <laughs> You're. Um, incredibly lucky to have the investors that we do. Um, they're uh-huh. people who care about the planet. They're people who care about creating a better food system. Um, but they also believe in the idea that you can do well by doing good. Mm-hmm. And I think, 
um, we have been unreasonably lucky with the people we've been able to connect with who believe in what we're doing, but also see a financial opportunity in what we're doing um, and recognize that the story needs to be foolproof and there needs to be no skeletons in the closet for this real story to, to be reflected as the real thing. And right. so, you know, we have utmost transparency. We have, we, we do not have any skeletons in the closet and our investors like it that way because that's the company that, you know, this, this thing is going to work because it tastes good, but it's also going to work because it, people are going to see it as the right thing to do and the right thing to eat. So we need to really live that every day. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Well, and it sounds like you just just hearing you talk about it, you have, as the leader of the organization, have developed a really good way to talk about this that would be compelling to investors as well. I think so. I mean, I certainly don't sugarcoat anything. And, and I think um, people see that and they recognize mm -hmm. that they're, you know, they're going to see that they're hearing what they what, what the truth is. And I think, right. you know, I don't know if that, you know, it, it definitely doesn't mean you get every investor, but it also means that I'm not choosing every investor. And I think that that's really key for entrepreneurs is that it, when you take money from someone you're taking for your business to grow, you are also taking that person with you on that ride and they are part mm -hmm. of your team. And if there's a not, if they're not the right investor, they, they shouldn't be part of that team, no matter what the price tag looks like. And I think that that's something that has been, like I said, I've been very fortunate to have the right people in my corner and encouraging me to take the right money. Because certainly as a, as a woman in business, sometimes you walk into a room of, you know, let's say there's 15 people and, and 15 of them are white males over the age of 60 who wouldn't ever eat seaweed. Right. Um, and you look around that room and say, you know what, you guys aren't my people. <laughs> I know this is a great business opportunity, but I'm not sure that this is the right partnership. And and that's not to say that all white men over 60 fall in that category, but you can sort of feel what I'm saying. I, I mean, our demographic that eats our food is going to tend to be younger. It's going to tend to be women. It's going to be people who are focused on health and nutrition. Um, and so certainly our company's investment isn't for everybody, but we need to build Team Kelp in the, in the, in the vision of what we want to become, not in, in what we're going to be tied to if we don't take on the right money. Right. Right. It's such a, it's such a delicate thing. Right. And it's, um, and you know, and men have the same issue, right? I mean, finding the right investor is always, yep. is always an issue. Right. Um, I, it's funny because part of me, you know, you go to Expo West or East or other other pitch event things, and they'll always have the panel that is the, um, you know, you got to pick the right investor. And there's, you know, they say that. And part of me is like my head hurts every time I hear it because not everybody has the opportunity to pick, right? Taking on the wrong investor might be even worse than yeah. not being funded. Yeah. Because yeah. that's, that's a marriage. You know, I mean, yeah. look at it from a relationship standpoint. Marrying the wrong person is worse than not getting married. Right. <laughs> right? right. And that's what you're doing with an investor. Um, and I think, I think that that is something that, you know, you hear a lot, but it's, it's really true. I mean, the fact that mm -hmm. I, I was able to go back to our investors and say, hey, guys, we're going we're gonna to have to make this pivot to retail a lot quicker than we anticipated because of COVID. 
And there wasn't even a question because number one, right. we had the track record. Um, number two, it was out of our control. But number three, these investors believed in, believe in this and know that mm-hmm. it can be something. And so we were able to mobilize a, a convertible note round very quickly because we mm-hmm. have the right people in the room. And yeah. that's not something you're going to get from the wrong investor. The conversation could easily have been, well, um, you know, you guys have not performed in the way that we wanted you to, even though it was because of COVID, we would, you know, I'm going to make this, this hurt right. the company um, to give money. And we're, we don't have anyone that would even consider that. And I think, I think if you're with the wrong person, you start ending up, um, you know, paying the devil a little bit to do the work that you need to do. And that's, that's not, that's not how you kind of want to move forward in a business. And that's not, that's right. not a way we've ever had to move forward. And we, we feel very fortunate about that. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And I think it's particularly important for businesses like yours that have such a strong mission base to what you're doing in your brand and your company, right? It's right. The, the, the more that is, um, is in foundational to a company, the, the more important it is to get the investor alignment, right? On a values level, not just a financial level. Right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And so I think... did... Good. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Do you... So where did your investors come from? Are they, the at least in the beginning, were they all from Maine? So they were people who, for whom the economic development thing really resonated? Or was it more, you know, sort of the healthy consumer or boy, wouldn't it be cool to have kelp side of things? Yeah, so there were investors pre before I came on, there was an existing set of investors. And I can't uh-huh. speak for, for the reasons that they invested, but certainly the um, investors that came on after, after you know, when I started raising money, um, I think, uh, you know, I would... I, I, many of them were compelled by different, you know, some mm-hmm. of them from the fact that it was a woman run company doing something very innovative, others from an environmental angle, others from a food angle, um, mm-hmm. others from a, from a social equity point of view. So I think we really do have a mixed bag and that's something that's really exciting about our, our business is we really do have many different storylines that can, mm-hmm. um, that, several different types of people can relate to. And some people kind of get excited about the whole package. And I would say that all of our investors fall in that category, but there may be a specific line of that, that that particularly speaks to them. If their investment thesis is around environmental improvement or if it's around women run businesses. Um, and so we, we have a mix of people from, from, you know, Maine and New England and also some venture capital out of Austin for women run businesses. Um, so it's kind of, it's a very diverse uh, group of investors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that brings up um, something else about mission, um, you know, heavily mission grounded businesses is that um, all of those things are, are, would be potentially compelling to a consumer as well. Right. But you right. have such a small, in your brand hierarchy, you have such a small footprint like practically speaking like how do you how do you convey all of it so you have to kind of prioritize when you do that so how did you think about that when you were doing your brand development work <laughs> yeah it's it's something my I have an incredible team um number one mm-hmm. I am not 
uh, a branding expert, but I have a team of people that work with us that are. Mm-hmm. And um, our sales and marketing director, who also happens to be a daughter of a fisherman um, mm. here on the coast of Maine and has a ton of background in natural food. We, we basically just bounced ideas off of each other and off our board and off our, our, our partner farmers and off our friends and, you know, what resonates with people. And I think intrinsically, you know, we are the demographic, late upper 30s, women, health-focused with kids, right? I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that's actually very, very squarely in our demographic. Um, and, and I know what, what I am passionate about is, is food and the economy and the environment. And mm-hmm. it's what she's passionate about is, you know, the same type of things. And, and it's actually a pretty digestible three-pronged message. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the health aspect is something that is just inherent in kelp, and it's something that people kind of associate with seaweed anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, those who, they think, oh, it's seaweed, it must be healthy. And I'm not sure if that's because for years people have been told that seaweed is healthy. Or right, right. Healthy eat it in Japanese cooking or what, but that message is, is very important, but it seems to be intrinsic in eating of seaweed anyway. Right, so, so you don't have to you know, remind people of that. Right, right, right. They just have to look at the nutrition panel. It's pretty obvious. Um, mm-hmm. And and so it's really just what's the differentiator. It's clean, cold waters, and it, it's got a story to it. And, and when you eat this, you're helping the coast and you're helping the environment, and that has been really... Um, People understand that pretty quickly, and I I attribute that to my incredible team's ability to put put that fairly complex message into forward and right. make that very digestible. And I think I think that speaks to from an entrepreneurial entrepreneur's point of view having this this team that you know I uh, I am more than willing to hear that I'm wrong. And I do hear that I'm wrong uh, daily. I keep telling them that <laughs> someday I'm going to hire a yes man. I just haven't found no, that person yet. But, um, you know, I think, I think, you know, understanding that, that, that it's not a single person that makes any one decision, but in fact, a, a group of incredibly qualified people, especially in a startup, um, that are going to run the company. It's not going to mm-hmm. be one person. So I attribute that to this, this incredible team that I, that I was able to build, but also their incredible work and dedication to what we're doing and making sure that it's digestible and understandable to the average consumer. Yeah. And, and I don't know if you have enough, um, if you've been in on store shelf long enough to know the answer to this yet, but, but um, how, how, you know, if the stores seem to be, compe- you know, find the story compelling, they're bringing you on. Are consumers finding you right now? It's hard to know. <laughs> yeah, it's hard, I, uh, isn't it? Because of COVID. Let's on this in like eight months. Um, it's definitely hard to know. I mean, we're in an, it's, if I were to name the optimal time to launch a brand, it wouldn't necessarily be in the middle of a global pandemic when people yeah, are wearing not. masks. Right. <laughs> Yeah. Store and rushing by the, the right and rushing through and right. not looking, yeah, right. And it's not like this happened last year. Um, so I, uh, you know, it's 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 very hard to tell. What we do know is that the 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 trends in functional food have been on the incredible increase. I think the purchase of functional foods has gone up by fifty eight percent since COVID started. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, the freezer section is now where people are starting to live in a very real way rather than in the fresh section. Um, people are looking for immune-boosting health products and probiotics is one of the key terms in that. So the fermented food section is moving much quicker than all others. So we do know that people are going to these areas of the grocery store. We do know that we are launching incredibly aggressive digital campaigns to try to get people to, if they are online shopping rather than going in, see the ads from Atlantic Sea Kelp and then put that in their cart at Wegmans on their mm-hmm. shopping. But it's really too early to tell uh, what that will be. And we also don't have any sense of comparison about what it would have been before. So, um, right, you know, we are right. sort of flying, flying blind a little bit more than, than we we otherwise would be. But, uh, you know, at the same time, we're launching a product that no one's ever had. So I'm not sure that data would have helped us anyway. Right, um, right. This just gives us an excuse to know that we don't have data and not have to feel uh, feel like we are missing out on data that might have been out there, but it really wasn't. So, um, right. yeah, well, we'll learn a lot. And, uh, you know, our lunch, we just launched our frozen products to uh, natural grocers on September 10th to the West Coast. Of course, it's in a time of in the middle of fires. So, uh, oh, again, God, if I, I can know, right. launch an optimal time for launching a product out the West Coast, it would be right now. Um, and then the middle of October is our fermented products are launching out, out West. But, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens with, with all of that. What we do know is, is in New England, we have a very loyal following. We do know that we're right on trend. We know that our products speak to a lot of what consumers are, are looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, I just saw something the other day I sent to our sales team that was about, you know, consumers want food that is um, focused in mission, consumers want food that has a face attached to it, consumers want food that is good for the environment, and it went through all of these things. Right. And my, my uh, retail sales manager was like, look, we sell 700%. Of what people are looking for. Right. <laughs> so, um, you know, if, if anyone's going to do it, we think it can be us. Um, but it, mm-hmm. it's definitely not the optimal time for launch. And we're excited to see what creative ways we can come up with. I mean, I think I think the positive side of this is at a time when people are limiting food, we are able to bring something really innovative to grocery chains that right now yes. is being kind of innovation is being taken out as you know like new yes. startup food companies aren't coming up right now people are running out of money people aren't finding right ways to employ people people are having a very difficult time no, no one's going to kind of jump out of their desk job right now to start a food company i mean that would be right. ludicrous so there is a lot less noise at the moment than there otherwise mm-hmm. would be and i'm not saying that's a good thing because it certainly is not but it's it's mm-hmm. something that we do have the advantage of 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 being part of right now and um, also that we're offering something that no one ever has and that Sprouts can really say like, hey, I know that there's not much new coming in here, but um, you know, here we really are committed to innovation and this is some, a really innovative product as we, know right. we have to stock more of the stuff that everyone's buying every day and we're losing some shelf space to other things, but this is something we're still committed to doing and this mm-hmm. is something that's innovative in a way that we haven't seen before. And I think, I think that's really exciting that places like Sprouts and Whole Foods and are, are really dedicated to innovation in a very mm-hmm. real way and are making that very clear through purchasing these kind of products. Yeah, and they have to differentiate themselves from Kroger's these days too, right? So um, right, that, I right. mean, that dynamic was always there. And so, in, in part, I kind of felt like before COVID, there was 
it was so frothy in a way that like Kroger's had everything, all, all kinds of new brands. And so, and that was putting more pressure on Whole Foods. And then Whole Foods is like, Amazon now owes them. And they're like, oh, okay, enough is enough. We can't be doing this anymore. You know, it was like this weird cycle. Um, and I think right. a lot of the natural category was kind of losing its way in that. And this yep. is an opportunity for the natural category to step up and say, we're, we are still the leaders in innovation and particularly social mission aligned brands. Right, right. Yeah. Exactly. And it's, it's been really, it's also just been really cool to see these grocery chains put their money where their mouth is on this. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. it's, to see that in a, in a time where everything feels, uh, you know, disingenuous and, and you're skeptical about everything everyone says. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. It's really nice to, to be at a time where I'm, I'm otherwise feeling maybe a little bit more skeptical because of global politics and because of climate change and because of COVID. And, and, and to see some of these retail brands that talk about how they're in these, these grocery brands, they talk about sustainability and innovation and, and they actually stand by that and are doing it. And, and that's really refreshing. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I think, you know, if there is a path out of the wilderness that we're in, it is along the lines, I think, of, of smaller mission-oriented brands that are, are truly creating impactful change like yours is, right? Um, I think I think we have to give consumers the more opportunities to um to to have you know to purchase products like yours to for the benefit of the planet and yeah we yeah and to push on the on the channel like the natural the natural channel to go back to its roots where it started from yep and we we have said i mean just through those natural co-op grocers i mean those are yeah. Those places are just such incredible beds of innovation. And, you know, we've had people sight unseen, they hear our story and they want our product on their shelf. Um, right. And, and so like the NCG, the National Co-op Grocer group of, of, mm-hmm. of folks and, and yeah. the places that participate in that. I mean, those are, those are the true believers and it's been really neat to see them kind of own this brand mm-hmm. um, and, and push it out to their con- consumers. Yeah, no, and they're really, I I love, you know, when brands really fit with that channel, I I love that channel because, as you said, they really will get behind a brand when totally. they see the mission, right? They'll, totally. they'll really help you. Yeah. And it's so great, you know, some of our partners in, like, Boston that do that stuff will send us texts like, hey, this customer just walked out and said this great thing about your product and how they have to have it in their show, you know, and, who does That's that? So Who cool. sends you a right. text? Like just getting right. that, getting that feedback when you're stuck every day in the is the blancher. We need a new part for the blancher that will cost seven thousand dollars, and I know right. what part this is and how is this possible? <laughs> right, <laughs> right. A text like that, and everything feels like okay. We're all we're all headed in the right direction. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. So what do you see for the future? So let's let's imagine that um, the brand continues to grow the way it is and you're now a national brand. What do you and your investors want to do with this company? Yes. I mean, I think there's a number of ways it can go. But really kind of the base of it is that we, we want to 
drive impact back to the coast. So I think the brand piece is only a part of it. Mm-hmm. You know, our, our consumer packaged goods and our food service businesses is, is a is a part of part of it, but it's it's a part that that is sort of in indefinite growth. Um, you know, there's certain ways that we can create new products. We can put new lines out. We can we can saturate more conventional grocers. We can do all these kind of things. But um, you know, it does help us kind of forge that brand and be the story about kelp. So anyone who falls short of that story isn't considered in the same mm-hmm. rank of, of, of sustainability. And I think we can make a huge impact as that, this category grows. But, um, you know, the other side of it is how can we make sure some of our seed is in nutraceuticals and cosmetics? I mean, the stuff right. that we put on our skin is as important as the stuff we put in our bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, and the nutraceutical industry, you know, people are using iodine tablets and, and multivitamins with iodine in them, and they're using seaweed from God knows where. Um, that's not being tested or monitored for heavy metals. How about we can make an impact on there? Or there's Mm -hmm. new research that um, people are doing for bioplastics or fabric. I spoke with a company the other day, Algenet. I did an Instagram live conversation with their founder because they're making clothes out of seaweed. Wow. Um, Another one is we're learning that when cows eat red seaweed, um, I'm sorry, brown seaweeds or red seaweeds, their actual emission of methane is lower. Hmm. So you're helping climate change by pulling it out of the water, but then also feeding it to cows um, in a number of different forms can actually reduce their methane emission. So, hmm. you know, there's there are a number of different ways that we could grow the impact on the coast and make some really exciting changes in the way that you put things on your face, the way things that, the way you wash your hair, the way that you wear your clothes. And right now, all of that is very uh, high value and high price. But there is going to be a critical point when that you know spores pours over into other uses that are much more accessible by the common person. So, if I could grow five million pounds on the coast of Maine, that means five million pounds is, is paid back to farmers right. on, here on the coast. And we have the capacity, we have the ability. We're just waiting to grow that much. We're, we're working our best to quickly grow that market and there is there is an urgency here as the climate changes so drastically to move quickly and effectively the thing that i find so um so unique about you so usually when people organize and maybe this is because of the evolution of the organization right started out in a more typical the farmer, the fisherman, they're doing something that makes sense for them from a production standpoint, but they're not really good at market development and we don't really have markets for these things. So I'm thinking about things like here in the Midwest, we grow, lots of people have adapted, uh, started growing hazelnuts because they can use it for riparian buffer mitigation, right? So they had, there's huh. this environmental, yeah, there's this environmental potential impact that's really positive, but there is nobody's doing the the heavy lifting you're doing to create the consumer products and the demand for the actual hazelnuts. So now we have hazelnuts and no market for them, right? It was kind of backwards. So what is yeah. what I love about what you're doing is that the innovation at the at this farmer fisherman level is 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 happening at the same time the market creation is happening. Yeah, it's so you one don't of get the, out of it's sync. One of the things, right. It's one of the things that, you know, people do want to talk and, and this is sort of I've been um 
so optimistic, this whole call, and I'm a very optimistic person, but I think there is sort of a side here of the easy part of this is growing the kelp, right? right. It's not easy, but it's not the hardest part. Um, and I think I often get nervous when people say, kelp is the new kale, everybody grow kelp, go, 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 go. Right. Uh, it's, it's not that easy, and I can't tell you how many times you get calls at the end of season saying, oh, I put in 5,000 feet of line because I heard there was this huge market and there's no one there to buy it. Right. Um, and that's something that, you know, that hazelnut story is a perfect example. I think when, especially when you think about like nonprofits getting involved in things yeah. or academic institutions, sometimes they put the, the cart before the horse. And right now it's one of the reasons we provide buying guarantees to every, it's the right thing to do, but it's also just the way you're going to grow it is, all of our fishermen know they're going to be taken care of. Right. Um, and in in April of this, or March of this year, you know, 90% of our our customers backed out overnight. I mean, they're not backed out. They closed down, for God's sake. Right, they were worse right. than anybody. Um, and and uh, we were able to send an email to all of our partner farmers and say, there's a lot, of, lot to worry about right now as we're heading into an April harvest season, but us picking up is not one of those things that you to worry about come hell or high water we will be there and we will pay and we will pick everything up because at the end of the day the integrity of what we're doing is all that we have if this thing is going to survive that's that's how we're going to build it and i think um i think it is always important with conversations around seaweed or any new industry jackfruit quinoa whatever you hear these nightmares now about quinoa everyone got very excited about it and then people overgrew and then you hear about labor abuses in in south america with you know it's just Mm -hmm. we we need to be really careful about how to grow this and if we can if we can be the voice the the leading voice in growing this industry in a way that actually makes sense both for people and planet um and set the tone in a way that is responsible and grows the industry quickly but responsibly i think that right. we you know we can really set the tone for a new industry here in the u.s and i, and I hope that we can we can do that I, I mean i know that we are going to stay true to all those values but it is something that at times makes me skeptical when i hear things like kelp is the new kale i'm like well let's just go down there for a second yeah right right like oh, <laughs> let's wait a minute and and make this and we can make this work the right way and here in the coast of Maine, we have the capacity to grow so much kelp and to affect so many people's lives in a very positive way um, and diversify our income stream where, in a place where everybody has their eggs in one basket. And um, and that's, that's what we intend on doing. And so we, we have this phrase at the, at the business where we keep our heads head down and chins up, um, mm-hmm. which, which is, I know, physically impossible. And that's one of the reasons we say it, because uh, sometimes uh-huh. it feels like what we're doing is impossible. But really just head down, make sure we're always making the right decision and chin up and that when that blancher breaks and you pay $7,000 for a piece of equipment you didn't know existed, you just keep right. your chin up and keep going because you know we're doing the right thing. So yeah. um, it's it's kind of the great the great experiment on our side and we're, we're pretty excited about being the ones that are able to do it and, and taking that social responsibility um, to the level it needs to be to set the tone for the industry. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and if you succeed at this, you're going to be a model for other industries too. I mean, there's, as, as I said, with the, the hazelnuts and they're, they're 
all kinds of um, products that are coming along in um, silvo pasture things like you know chestnuts and and bear, high functionality super you know berries like aronia and elderberry and all of these have a place in um, you know more regenerative um, food production in the United States, but they're all going to need what you're doing, which is the market development and the product development, and the branding, and all of that in order to make them work right and be That's sustainable. Right. Yeah, That's so right. you're yeah, a model for I... more than just kelp. Thank you, I appreciate that. We'll see if it if I think we'll be a model for successful, right? And yeah. so I think you know, so far so good, and I I um, expect that it will continue on that trend. But I think you know, from an advocacy and policy angle, one thing that I've been um, talking about in general, um, from an advocacy and policy level, is one is that let's record success not in number of jobs, but in number of careers. Mm-hmm. So here in Maine, for example, we have 1.2 million people. We're the oldest mm-hmm. state in the country, and we're at right. full employment almost always. But that doesn't mean that people have careers. Right. Um, you know, they, they snowplow, then they uh, <laughs> landscape, and then they work at the hotel, and then they, you know, it's, it's, it's right. very, it's, it's extremely varied, and it's a very poor state in part because of that. Mm-hmm. So what we are really providing is, is a more, is a smoother economic future for people. And I think that that is some, that nuance is something that we need to keep in mind as we're talking about food policy and economic policy in general is how do we provide meaningful, valuable, risk-resistant careers for people? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that's, that's basically what we're doing, but also on an advocacy level. Where can the government, rather than kind of choosing winners and losers on developing kind of the ground-level agricultural side, how do we make sure that we have a food system that is fully supported throughout the supply chain? Mm-hmm. And how do we support innovation? I mean, when you look up food innovation grants, it's almost always at the growing level. Right. Um, and it's not at the science level for, okay, how do we do, how do we really understand how omega seeds from kelp are processed in the, in the, in the system so that we can tell consumers how this product is affecting their diet. Right. in a positive way. We, you know, there's no money for that, and I can't use investor money for that. Right. So, you know, things like that in, in an advocacy perspective of, of helping, of rather than just investing in the most obvious part of the food system, um, and one of the reasons it's broken is because it's not being thought of in a holistic way. And I right. think that there's ways that government and nonprofit can really kind of reconsider how they're putting money into the food system to inspire more sustainable and I don't mean sustainable and just in like the environmental way but sustainable and that it's sustaining itself and is is, is socially just sure. um to, well, to and be foundations more too like That's foundations right. how right. how what role could they play in this as well right I mean I think right I think helping them broaden their horizon um and thought process about how they could how they could be instrumental would be really helpful it would be, it would be, and I think, I think, kind of this targeted as the food system grows, as people are doing more amazing things, like water lily seeds, for example. Right. Or, <laughs> there's a million things out there, and, and most Americans, you know, what is that statistic that Americans get nutrients from the same five foods? Right. Um, right. And there's very little diversity in the food system, 
and mm-hmm. and to kind of spur this innovation so that we can better understand our food system and, and make better choices at a lower price point is, is really key. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Brianna, this has been, as as I warned everybody in the beginning, we're this is going to be a wide-ranging conversation because of the scope of the impact you guys are having. And I just want to thank you for spending this time with us because I am so inspired by your company and what you're doing. Thank you, Terrible. And I'm inspired every day by what you've done. I mean, you, you have built a company and built your own. Um, like right now we think of whey as being something that is, that is a category that's always been there, but you really forged that category and you're taking so many of those lessons and helping other entrepreneurs like myself. Um, figure out how to do that and, and keep our heads down and our chins up. Chins so up, all yes. the work that you're doing is, is incredibly important too. So I'm just I'm 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 incredibly honored to be asked to be on this on this show with you. Oh, thank you, thank you. Well, we're going to stay in touch with you because I know our listeners are going to be interested to hear what come what's next as things evolve with with your company. So um, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, and have a wonderful day, Tara. Thanks for listening. You can get more podcasts by subscribing on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And you can learn more about Edible Alpha by visiting our website at ediblealpha.org.